Unlock exclusive content and access to our podcast while supporting our show. How is that possible? Become a Narratives of Purpose patron at patreon.com forward slash NOP podcast. Hello, dear listeners, and welcome to Narratives of Purpose. You are now tuned into a new episode showcasing unique stories of change makers, stories of people who are contributing to make a difference in society. This show was created to amplify social impact by sharing individual journeys of ordinary people who I believe are making extraordinary impact within their communities and around the world. My name is Claire Morigande. I am your host on this podcast. If you want to be inspired to take action, then look no further. You are in the right place. Get comfortable and listen in to my conversations. On today's episode, I have two guests. I will be speaking with Broadreach Group founding partners, Dr. Ernest Darko and Dr. Don Sargent. Ernest and John's company is a global social enterprise that seeks to transform how health work gets done. In fact, the Broadreach Group consists of two businesses. The first one is Vantage Health Technologies, an AI-enabled platform that creates solutions for complex health challenges. And the second one is Broadreach Health Development, which implements high-impact population health programs. In our conversation, Don and Ernest talk about their almost 20-year work in health equity. They also share their vision of a world where people flourish through access to good health. And for this episode to reach more people, I invite you to take a moment and share your feedback by giving us a review on Apple Podcast or on our website at narratives-of-purpose.com podcastpage.io. This will help other listeners find our show and further amplify the stories we bring you on the narratives of purpose. For now, let's dive into the discussion with John and Ernest. There is just so much to learn from their work. Gentlemen, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? Good, Claire. Great. Yeah, thanks for having us. I'm curious to know how you actually both became business partners. So I have gathered from your LinkedIn profiles that you both were graduates from the Harvard Medical School. So that's where you met. But I'd like to know a bit more about your backgrounds and how you two met and started up with this idea of putting Broadreach together. Sure. Um, so I'm your typical, you know, third culture African diaspora kid. Uh, you know, my parents are from Ghana, but um, was born in the U.S., but from age four, grew up in Tanzania and Kenya and um, went to the U.S. For, for, for undergraduate, but I guess always felt drawn back, back to Africans in, 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 the, in the sense that this is where I wanted to work and this is where I wanted to make a difference. So um, in medical school, then um, I bumped into John Sargent. We, we sort of became fast friends. I think John has also has a very interesting sort of multicultural story. And we both had this real passion for, in essence, how can we improve 
things in the quote unquote developing world. Um, and we connected on that particular, around that particular passion. And um, and then ultimately when we did form Broadreach, we sort of connected again to form the company. Ernest's mom always says that Ernest and I are like cosmic twins because when we first met in medical school, we immediately hit it off. It was the first week of medical school. But like Ernest, I'm also sort of multicultural mixed up. <laughs> so I'm, I'm half Asian, was born in Taipei. My mother uh, was Taiwanese, dad American. And then because of his job, we moved around um, and lived in lots of different places. And so I always grew up um, never really identifying with one spot and growing up in multiple cultures, hearing multiple languages um, all the time. So I've always had a fascination um, with anything international. And because I, I chose a career in medicine, um, international health made sense. And I had spent time before I met Ernest in medical school, um, working and volunteering in refugee camps, both in West Africa and in the Middle East. And I think that sort of got me jazzed. And so when I met Ernest in, in medical school, I think we, instead of studying like we should have, we, we probably spent a lot of time chatting about, hey, you know, when we grow up one day, what are we going to do to change the world? And I think sharing our, our common observations and dreaming of what could be possible. From what I gathered, you actually have two businesses within Broadridge Group. So Ernest, would you like to start and explain to me what are these two different businesses and why you actually structured that way? I think in medical school, the the two professors who sort of John and I really felt like we want to be like them when we grew up were Jim Kim and Paul Farmer, um, who formed partners in health. That model of doing international work of high impact really, really did appeal to us. And little did we know we'd end up doing that. So I ended up in many ways actually kind of following John. John was sort of my guide through a lot of the moves I made then in my career. There was a time in medical school where, you know, you could go out and do an external experience. And John went and worked at a consulting firm. Um, and at that particular point, I had no idea what consulting was. You know, so John, through John, I learned about the, the area of management consulting. And I found it absolutely fascinating because was like for the first time, here's a field where someone's going to pay you to know a lot about many different things. And so at the end of medical school, um, instead of actually going in and practicing medicine, I went into management consulting and I worked for McKinsey and Company for a number of years. And then that actually led me to working in the country of Botswana at the time when they were launching the first public sector HIV treatment program on the continent. And um, I worked on that project. On a, it was a pro bono project that McKinsey did back in the year 2000. And after that, I was asked if I'd resign from McKinsey and come and be the operations manager of the program. And, um, and that was a life-changing experience for me. And in the middle of that experience, uh, big uh, funds like the Global Fund and PEPFAR started, and lots of countries were looking for expertise in terms of how do you scale up um, and manage large-scale HIV programs in TB and malaria programs uh, as well. And at that particular point, I reached out to John, uh, who had been doing best practice work um, with hospitals and top hospitals in the U.S., what he knew about how top hospitals in the world performed and with what I knew now about how public sector worked, uh, the question was, can we create a better way of delivering large-scale health services that was more effective and previous models. So similar to Ernest, you know, I think I knew pretty early on that um, while you know clinical medicine is great and you can help individual people, it's really tough to help entire populations. And I think that externship that Ernest talked about in my fourth year of medical school uh, really changed my life. I spent three months working with a small boutique firm that worked with hospitals in the U.S. And uh, we were working with a hospital in the Southeast of the United States that was about to go into a, an experimental Medicare capitated care program. So sort of the very early days of population health. 
And um, we were asked to design like what a population health program could look like. So you could take care of a number of senior uh, patients and keep them healthy and keep them out of the hospital. I just, I fell in love. I was like, wow, you can actually do these sorts of things. You can work on health systems. And then, so when Ernest had the project in Botswana, it, funnily enough, I was actually with another colleague of mine, we were looking at potential opportunities to do international healthcare. Um, and then I met Ernest in lunch uh, in, in Washington, DC, like in literally, and that turned into <laughs> broad reach. But you know, at the end of the day, we are a, a mission-driven organization. We're a social enterprise. Our only you know, mission in life is to make sure that people get access to good health. And, and our feeling is that if people don't get access to good health, uh, ultimately, you can't meet your potential as a human. You can't flourish and contribute what you, you can contribute um, during your lifetime. And so this is really important to us and why Ernest Project in Botswana rapidly became our very first project. So we quit our jobs. Um, we took Ernest's job in Botswana and flipped it into a, a Broadreach contract. And at the time, Broadreach was a consulting company. So we would win um, grants like in Botswana. Um, and very quickly, we, we won a large grant from USAID under the PEPFAR program, the President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief. And we did all sorts of stuff. So it's sort of that first business, which today we call Broadreach Health Development, morphed into what I would call a classic uh, consulting and implementation services business. So when large scale grants from you know these big donors and do things like help with policy and strategy at a country level on how you deal with HIV or get down to the nitty gritty and, and put people in rural clinics and hospitals and help improve the performance and even augment with doctors and nurses, anything that you could do to ensure that as many people got tested onto treatment um, and stayed on treatment for HIV and TB. I think 10 years into the process, we realized that it's really hard to do any kind of health systems work if you don't have data and if you don't know what's going on. And we, we collected so much of our own data. We built these massive Excel spreadsheets and it just, it just wasn't working. And so we started building our own software. And we realized that anybody running a health system, whether you're a minister of health, down to a community healthcare worker, there's two things that you have, you have to get right. The first issue is you need to make the right decision at the right time. In your role, in their geography, what's the decision they need to make that week, number one. And number two, even if you make the right decision, it doesn't mean you can implement it. And so how do you guide somebody or, or teams of people to implement? So it really becomes about make the right decision for the right person at the right time and helping that person and their team implement it. And that's really how Vantage, our technology platform evolved. And we can you know, go into a lot more detail, but it's been a really interesting journey. And I think if you would have asked Ernest or myself, you know, back in the early 2000s when we started Broadreach, if we thought we'd be a technology company, I would have laughed at you. <laughs> but, but here we are today in 2022, and we are you know, doing a lot of technology. And that's actually an interesting development, I would say, because it's also in phase with the whole digital transformation we're all going through. So the fact that you have your own technology, is that a specific advantage that you don't need to count on another company doing, you know, their own tools that you have to use? Or how do you see that? So so for us, um, one of the things when, when we did actually start Vantage, there were there was still quite a bit of technology out there, right? Even though it was old school and in the old model, before there was a cloud, right? You had to buy a server on your premises, install it. Um, but you'd have, you know, HR systems, finance systems, lab systems. Uh, you'd have uh, reporting systems like DHIS at the time, you know. Um, and then you had a lot of apps and little tools people were also developing in parallel. But the problem was there was nothing that pulled it all together, right? 
Um, you know, there was nothing. In fact, it became, well, how do I integrate all this information from all these, you know, paper and non-paper based sources? And, and how do I integrate it all ideally in real time to make a decision, right? And what happens is attempts at integration usually meant hiring a consultant who would physically go around, gather this data, you know, create an Excel, then analyze that, then put that analysis in a PowerPoint, present it to people. But usually that took three months or four months to do that analysis. So what ends up happening is, yes, you have some intelligence from that data, but it's usually three or four months old, sometimes six months old. And then you're trying to make decisions about the past in order to guide the future, which doesn't really make sense. So we felt with Vantage in particular, it was kind of a really unique tool of its kind was that this finally could sit on top of all of these systems and in essence, mine the benefit from them and make it much more real time and timeliest for people to get the right insights about what's going on. And, and for us, the right insights means insights that allow you to really focus your very, very scarce resources in the most powerful way possible because you've got no other choice on this continent, right? And then secondly um, was the issue of, we, we realized from our work actually implementing that implementation was always a struggle. And therefore then how do you support people to now do the fixing that needs to be done in the right way? In particular, we talk about large teams of you know, 5,000, 10,000 staff who are in a particular geolocation who are need to be doing activities well, and you can't manually supervise all of them appropriately. So could you use the technology to also support them all in a much better and more effective way? So what we found was it was a game changer in the sense that one, people have invested billions in all these other tools, but weren't really getting the benefit from it. So Vantage allows you to unlock the benefit from all these existing investments. But then more importantly, it sort of helped you bridge that gap from data and knowledge to actually effective implementation, which was we found on the continent, that's actually the most important thing that we need to do is implement effectively, because that's what's really keeping us from the results that we need to have. I think, you know, for us, the digital health ecosystem is massive and there are um, so many opportunities to make a difference. You know, we have a very niche area that we're focused on, as Ernest described. And so for us, we prefer to partner because we're not solving every problem. As Ernest said, we're trying to help decision makers make better decisions and implement them. That's our unique focus area. And in order for us to do that, we have to partner with lots and lots and lots of different um, health systems, digital health uh, solutions um, that are out there. Tell us a bit more about where exactly you're operating, and you also spoke about some partners. Do you have any specific partners you could mention, perhaps? I'd say to date, um, we've worked across maybe 30 countries. Um, we've worked in, in China, Vietnam, Eastern Europe, Caribbean, but I'd say the bulk of our work has focused in Africa, um, and in Africa alone, I'd say... Yeah, we've worked extensively, mostly sub-Saharan Africa. We haven't done a lot of work in North Africa. We've worked, I'd say, in at least 20 of the African countries. So this has really been our, our foundation. And then from this foundation, we sort of realized, particularly with COVID, COVID sort of revealed that you needed a public health model everywhere, right? Because COVID was the, the public health issue of our time in terms of emergency. And I think that sort of woke up the U.S. to the issue of health equity. And we realized that a lot of what we were doing, in essence, is health equity, what we've been trying to solve on the African continent. And we felt that we could translate some of what we were doing to the U.S. Yeah. And, you know, I think, you know, big picture, we're about a thousand employees globally. And of those thousand, you know, 97, 98 percent are all in sub-Saharan Africa. 
either our headquarters in Cape Town, we've got multiple offices in South Africa, uh, we've got work and presence in Kenya, Uganda, Nigeria, Zambia. We also have projects here in Switzerland. We work, for example, with Medicines for Malaria Venture uh, here in Switzerland. We've worked with a number of pharmaceutical companies as well. You know, we've really been doing health equity for the last 20 years, but you know, 20 years ago, they didn't call it health equity. It was you know, health access and health quality. And you know, our, our feeling was that we've worked in some of the toughest places in the world, right? You're talking about you know, severe, severe capitation settings where, you know, you're working with governments that are spending maybe $30, $40 per patient per year. Contrast that to the U.S. at $16,000 per patient per year. You're working in extreme resource shortages in terms of doctors, nurses, everything. And you're dealing with extreme social determinants of health issues, right? You're dealing with people you know, who are maybe eating every other day, uh, maybe people who didn't have access um, to an education, people who have very different uh, cultural and behavioral beliefs about healthcare, right? So very extreme settings. So the thinking was that, you know, learning in those really, really tough settings, could we do something with our knowledge and our experience and, and our vantage platform to bring it back to the U.S.? And so interestingly enough, we did a number of projects in the U.S. as pilots just to test out, is our technology valid? Is there stuff we can do with it? And we've um, worked in a, in a wide variety of settings, but we've actually decided to focus on oncology and in particular community oncology. So for, for the listeners out there, when people think about oncologists, they typically think about large academic medical centers and Mayo Clinic, Johns Hopkins, Harvard. What we're talking about are doctors who are not, sometimes they're affiliated with the academics, but they're, but they're not in these big hospitals. They're you know, typically in a outpatient office in suburban or rural America. And, and these oncologists see roughly 60% of all the uh, cancer patients in the U.S., um, and it tends that those patients they see tend to be the ones that have a lot of social determinants of health issues. Um, they tend to be Medicaid patients or, or patients who you know, require a lot of assistance and help. And so we see a lot of things where you know, people are not eating healthy every day or they don't have reliable transportation. So how do you make it to your chemotherapy on time? And so all these types of issues, social determinants of health issues, if, you, if they're left unaddressed, you know, people will have horrible outcomes. Um, with their cancer. It's the same sort of thing we're seeing in Africa, different variations on the theme, but the same core principles are the same. And so um, we have just launched a really big pilot initiative. Actually, it's an initial demonstration project called the HOPE Initiative in partnership with a large um, oncology group um, in the south of the U.S., along with a national alliance of, of cancer organizations, the Community Oncology um, Alliance. Um, and so we're really excited. I think there's a lot that we've learned um, from Africa that we can now do sort of a south um, to north uh, transfer of knowledge and information. That's an interesting point, actually, because it's very rare that you hear from, a, as you say, a south to north transfer. What are the learnings that you've taken from your experience in Africa that you are now implementing in the US that you say, okay, this is something maybe people hadn't realized, but actually it actually works even in the setting as such as the US? I think the first big one is what we call the next best action. What we found very, very quickly in, in Africa was that there weren't enough people who um, were able to look at big, you know, data visualizations and dashboards and all that sort of stuff. And you're asking a nurse uh, manager of a rural clinic who's got 200 patients out the door on a Monday morning, and you're asking her to look at a, you know, a beautiful data visualization and from that make her management decision. Not going to happen. And, and we realized that very, very early on. People don't look at data. People don't look at analysis. They don't look at analytics. What they want to know is what's the so what? Based on the pattern of the data, what are the three decisions I need to make? And so we spent all our time with Vantage creating um, our machine learning algorithms to interpret that data and make it into plain English. 
So it'll say things like, hey, Claire, good morning, in an email that's auto-generated to you and say, you know, for your district this week, we think COVID is coming into this particular sub-district and the three clinics there are understaffed by five nurses. So you might want to reallocate five extra nurses this week. And by the way, you're short on PPE. So you might want to, you know, uh, talk to national supply chain and try to get more masks. And by the way, you need to implement a contact tracing. And here's a link to that. And when we went to the U.S., people were like, oh my God, you can do that? Because in the US, it's even worse because they have so much data. You know, They were getting data feeds from these external third-party companies that had all this crazy data that you'd ever want to know about a patient. But then you're forcing somebody in a doctor's office or an insurance company to like sort through the data and say, okay, what do I do with that? Oh, and then by the way, here's another company that's got a catalog of all the food kitchens in this neighborhood. How do I take this data here and match it over here? Oh, and by the way, um, you know, what's the taxi company we partner with in this particular area? Because I need to get a patient. And so you were asking a social worker or case manager to literally connect 15 dots before they could actually help a patient. And so when they saw this next best action concept, like just give me an email, just tell me, you know, John, as a case manager on Monday morning, these are your 10 patients you're dealing with this week. For patient number one, these are the three things we recommend. Here's the workflow. This is how to do it. Um, or at the executive level, this is what's happening with all your patients. And we see a really big gap in this area. You might want to consider this. That was what was missing. And so I think this whole next best action is now like it's starting to become like the hot trend um, in the U.S. market, but I'd like to claim <laughs> that we thought about this about seven or eight years ago um, in the African setting. I think the second piece is really understanding deeply about communities and where people are coming from and how they think about healthcare. So again, we just sort of assume, you know, whatever training we've had, we just assume that the patient comes to us, they come to our clinic and they listen to us because we're a doctor. We have an MD next to our name and they'll do what we say. And that doesn't happen at all because we don't understand what life is like in their community. We don't understand what distrust they have in the health system. We don't understand who they trust uh, in their communities. We don't understand their cultural and social beliefs and understanding of, of health and illness. And so I think a lot of the work is really building trusted relationships with organizations in the communities that people trust and working together with them to empower patients. Because at the end of the day, if you can't empower a patient to, to take charge of their own health, then you know we've, we've failed at this game. I'd say to me that the, the, one of the biggest lessons we've learned also about working in this environment is just the power of partnerships, in particular public-private partnerships. Um, you know, because I think often we've come into environments that we're like, well, there's no resources, there's no way this can be done. But when we just literally come in and do a partner mapping, we're like, well, like if you put everyone together, you're like an orchestra now that can actually play this song effectively, right? So I think we become good over the years at assembling the right partnerships around a particular mission that needs to be accomplished. There's so much more that could be done, right? And it greatly often exceeds what, you know, on paper, for example, people will tell you are the resources available. So jumping off of that, when you say there's just so much more that can be done, can you give us a bit of a of an idea or a flavor between you know all these two decades? What has been your impact so far? There's a couple of highlights. I think first and foremost, the Botswana program. Basically, we operations managed the first public sector HIV treatment program on the continent, and it's been successful. And I think most recently, it was Botswana, I think, is maybe the second or third country to actually hit the triple 95 targets. i say second was uh, where we worked in South Africa. South Africa is sort of ground zero for the global pandemic. Of, of the 38 million cases um, in the world, um, South Africa represents 8 million of that. Um, and then in South Africa, KwaZulu-Natal is the epicenter. And then in KwaZulu-Natal, there's a district called Ugu District, which is the worst 
most affected district in KwaZulu-Natal. And we were asked to assist that district uh, with their HIV program. And when we engaged with them, they were really doing badly. I think it was like there, instead of being in the triple 90s, it was in the triple 60s or so. And then by over an 18 month period, using our, techno our technology enabled approach, um, we were able to graduate them as the first district in the country to reach triple 90. And then I'd say another you know, big point of pride for us, I think, has been the province of KwaZulu-Natal taking on at a provincial level, the entire province using our technology. And they are now the leading province in the country in terms of being about to graduate the most number of districts with the triple 90 measures. So I think for us, these are like, this is huge in terms of it can be done at very large scale. I think we've, it's great proof of concept that if we can just scale up these approaches, we can really make a difference despite the fact that we, we don't have that many resources. But more importantly, I see it as an opportunity for Africa to show that we can actually develop a better health system than anybody else. Because if we can actually solve these problems with the low level of resources that we have effectively, to me, that is the best health system in the world not a health system that costs trillions of dollars, right? So I think we can actually show leadership globally on how we do this. And uh, using technology in the right way, I think, is key to us being able to do this. Uh, before I switch to you, John, on your highlights, can you just explain what is the triple 90, triple 95 measures? Because probably our listeners don't know about that. Triple 90 is a framework um, that was created by UNAIDS to guide the global response to the pandemic. And it says that basically 90% of people who are HIV positive should know their HIV status. Of those, 90% should be on treatment. And of those on treatment, 90% of them, their virus should be undetectable, meaning their virus should be suppressed. And then that has recently been changed to triple 95. Excellent. Thank you. And how about you, John? What are your highlights? I think maybe to, to add on to what Ernest was saying that, you know, I think the, the technology we've built advantage today, we are supporting organizations and governments that are running HIV programs that are helping over cumulatively over two and a half million patients on antiretroviral therapy. That's a big number. Or we had a really interesting project we worked with before COVID with a consortium of donors, NGOs, pharmaceutical companies, and governments called um, Access SMC. It's basically uh, it's seasonal malaria chemoprophylaxis. So there's a specific drug you can give to children five years old and under one dose prior to the malaria season. If they get that, their chance of getting malaria um, goes way down during the season. And, and in that particular program that year in 2019, we helped uh, that program do uh, supply chain forecasting, which ended up in 19 million children getting access to this, this medication. So I think that the scope, the scope and scale of what we've been able to do has been interesting. And I think one of our key partners um, from one of your prior questions is actually Microsoft. Um, and we are built on top of Microsoft Azure and we are what's called an ISV, independent software vendor. So anybody who builds technology on top of Microsoft and sells that is considered an ISV. And we're, we're actually Microsoft's largest healthcare ISV in Middle East Africa. So, you know, I think it's, it's been a lot of hard work, but we've got great partners and a lot of interesting results. And I think like Ernest says, my personal belief is that Africa will become sort of the place for, you know, sort of green field creation of the health systems of the future. Because if we can use technology in a, in a relatively you know, greenfield setting, I think we can really redefine what's possible. I think that's what the exciting thing is for the next 20 years. 
But jumping off on what you were saying, what has been your major challenges or what continues to be a major challenge for you at this point in really developing this and bringing that word out and growing your model globally from Africa? First and foremost is um, a lot of people claim to be innovative, but they actually are not. When you actually confront people with real innovation, they want to take baby steps. They don't really want to do big revolutionary things. As a front runner in using AI for population health and this type of application, we run into a lot of that. Uh, Second um, is policy definitely lags the, the pace of technological development. And often you find that becomes a bit of a barrier in terms of mindsets when you encounter people. And it takes a while for people to become comfortable with this new concept of, for example, the cloud, which actually provides massive cost savings and scalability, right? But it's something, again, people sort of fight because the existing system was built around this sort of non-scalable framework that then people tend to adhere to. You know, even if you look at a lot of the people who are involved in healthcare today, whether they're a donor, whether they're in the government, whether they're working in NGOs, I, I think they still have a very outdated view of healthcare. So, you know, we you know, tend to, in many of the countries we work in, you know, there's lots of big buildings, big tertiary care hospitals, lots of big clinics. And these are built, I think, really on a, a 1940s, 1950s sort of mentality that you had to have a big physical building that you had to have a certain ratio of doctors to nurses um, to patients. And we know that's simply not true because we cannot in the continent of Africa, or actually even in the United States, we cannot produce enough doctors or nurses to meet the demand of the future. And so a lot of the programmatic thinking, a lot of the funding, a lot of how people think about healthcare is still stuck in this mindset. And I think we've got to throw that all away because, you know, in the future, I mean, we're just not going to have enough doctors and nurses. And, you know, there's always demand. There's always going to be more demand for patients wanting medicines and whatever than there is actual supply. And so, you know, I think in the future, a patient doesn't need to be in a clinic to get diagnosed with diabetes. And I don't think they need to go to a clinic to actually self-manage their way through diabetes or you know any other disease. I think that whole model is ripe for change, but I don't think, you know, I don't think we're there yet in terms of the mindsets. And, and I think it leads to a lot of things being overly simplified, you know, so we get, you know, if only we fix this one little thing, we could solve the problem. So here's a really cool app to do this, or here's a cool app to do. And, you know, one or two apps aren't going to change the world. I think it's much more systemic thinking through how are we going to actually change old paradigms and shift into new paradigms. But speaking about the future, you say you've been pioneering and you've been really implementing this large-scale changes. So how do you see the future evolving now? Let's say in five to 10 years. I think in five to 10 to 20 years, we're going to be able to empower patients before they even become sick. So think about today, you've got you know apps like Strava or Fitbit or the you know the Apple Watch, and we're you know keeping track of you know how many steps have I taken, all that. I think that's going to go to a different level where we really start really thinking about what are we eating? How are we living? What's going on? And so that we're much more aware. So hopefully we're healthier when we get sick later. And, and, and informed by a genetic risk. Exactly. So in the future, could you get your genetic profile, match that with your lifestyle? Could we then start identifying for a patient that, yeah, you're probably going to be at risk for type 2 diabetes. And But by the way, here's a home kit you can test, whether it's a smart toilet or whatever, you can test. And if you're actually diabetic, then you schedule a telehealth call um, to initial provider, and they've got the information from your devices and all that, and they could potentially you know, make a prescription. And if you're in a rural area, maybe a drone comes and drops it off, and you take that, and then there's an app to help you self-manage and self-test along the way. So you may not even need to physically go 
in to see a, a, a doctor until or if something gets severely bad. And, and I think that's just scratching the surface. Um, I think precision medicine will be another big area, and especially when precision medicine becomes affordable and scalable to areas like uh, sub-Saharan Africa, I think we'll completely revamp how we deliver healthcare. And so things like, you know, the old big tertiary care hospital, um, I don't think it's going to exist in the way we think about it today. Right now, uh, WHO defines health as physical, you know, mental and social well-being, not just the absence of infirmity and disease. Unfortunately, too much of what we call healthcare is leaned towards that latter part of the definition around how we're managing infirmity and disease. We're probably going to see a much bigger swing towards how do you stay well? How do it actually keep you healthy, quote unquote, as a counterbalance to all this capacity we need to address uh, disease when it occurs. And I think right now, because of this too much overemphasis on the disease side, I don't think ad we adequately turn off the tap that's creating all this disease. So what are what is that? And that is like us in our homes making decisions every day about usually things that put us at risk and then social determinants that put us at risk systemically, right? So if I'm growing up with poverty, no job, no proper housing, living in a, in, next to a, a mine dump, right? I'm probably not going to end up healthy. So I think we're going to see probably a bit more of a shift back towards what keeps you healthy. And by definition, you're talking about having to intervene with me in my home, in my community, in my family, in my community, and therefore using technology as a modality to help deliver, quote unquote, the wellness supporting services, the linkages to the right sort of uh, services that head off my risk. And in essence, the way I see, the way I see the future is what, what I call almost like a cradle to grave, you know, almost like imagine I have a profile, right? That, you know, these are all of the interventions I need to have that maximize my life expectancy and my quality of life. And, and a much better way of assuring that all those interventions are on board. So from my childhood vaccines to uh, making sure I'm using a seatbelt to avoiding, you know, the exposures with salt, sugar, smoking, whatever, right? Um, all these interventions along the way, including mental health interventions along the way that keep me as healthy as possible for as long as possible. And then when I do need the health system, uh, hopefully there'll be less people who need it. And then those who need it, hopefully we'll have more access, again, facilitated by technology through whether it's telemed or all these other modalities that basically that radically improve access compared to what it is now where I'm expected to go to a fixed facility for the most part. And in particular in Africa, where some of these distances are literally thousands of kilometers, it doesn't make sense for that to be your only option. You know? So I see a future which is much more balanced in terms of wellness as well as the curative part. So really, you know, caring for health, as the healthcare word says, right? <laughs> and more in the direction of prevention, so to speak, right? To make sure that you're taking the right steps to to stay healthy and to age healthy as well, because this is something, you know, we don't talk about a lot, is that population is aging and aging healthy is a big concern, right? Well, when you take something like childhood mortality, right, and children dying of diarrheal diseases, the best intervention is clean water, not medication, right? Um, and if you really want to save lives, make sure they first have clean water. So sometimes it's as simple as that. And so I think, unfortunately, the mindset is still very much, you know, we'll build hospitals and train pediatricians and buy lots of drugs to treat this. But we have to also start, like, so when you think about the social determinants, as well as the curative issues, then you have a bit more balanced equation that maybe you can actually balance, you know, as opposed to now, where we're sort of saying, 
let everything go wrong and then we'll figure out how to how to mop it up and we're we're clearly already failing miserably and we're going to fail a lot more miserably and god forbid another covid or something comes along right i mean we're really in trouble so i think this covid should be a wake up call to what we need to start doing right and we should use it as an opportunity to leapfrog ourselves into a, be- a better healthcare systems I have an interesting question. I don't know if you have really an answer to that, but you know, something that I observe, and I guess well, people observe as well, is that you, we speak about global health and, and global solidarity. COVID was the first thing, at least like I would say in modern history, where the whole world was affected. But then even though there were some initiatives and some projects to help the countries where vaccines were not produced, we didn't see that solidarity really play out. So my question to both of you is, you know, from your experience now, you've been working 20 years, uh, especially at large scale uh, projects. What do you think is still needed or, you know, how would we get there? COVID, I think we could have easily predicted that it was going to play out that way. We talk about a global pandemic, you know, where, you know, it's life and death matter for everybody. People are going to take care of their own first. So if you're in a position where you can't take care of yourself, you're in big trouble. And this is why I think if you're a leader of a country or, you know, in any leadership position in a country, that's your job is to make sure that you can take care of your population. And to me, COVID is a wake up call for us is that, look, this is what is going to happen again the next time as well. So this is our chance now to realize you will probably be on your own. So what do you need to do this time to get your act together so that you can actually survive? The, the challenge with, with humans, I think we're, we're wired evolutionary to only see the immediate threat. So when the saber-toothed tiger is coming, like you're worried about the saber-toothed tiger as opposed to, you know, getting that next meal. And I think that's just the challenge of human nature. And you know, we know eating the sugar, it's really awesome when I'm eating it. And yeah, I might get diabetes in 10 years, but I'm going to have another slice of cake. And I, I just think it's human nature. I think people need to realize global health is global health. And global health isn't you know, it's the, the LMICs, the, the low and middle income countries and, and their stuff. And then we in developed countries are different. It's it's global. Everything is global by nature. And what happens in Zambia will absolutely impact what happens in Switzerland um, in healthcare. But I think the needle is moving. Yeah. And I think the, the, the lesson here to me is that, you know, really understanding if our fates are really tied together, right? It's really um, being able to respond in a way that it doesn't become all out mayhem. Because when it's mayhem, people retreat into, you know, their 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 boxes and it's like I'm locking down. Having a globe, a better global response is the way of preventing it descending into all out mayhem. And I think hopefully that if we can maintain that appreciation, these seedlings of, you know, solidarity can become much more concretized and systematized and part of our operating system as opposed to by exception. One of the things I did uh, when I was doing my master of public health back in the day was just studying emergency responses, right? And the number one reason why emergency responses usually fail is because the people all of a sudden who need to work together have never worked together before in that way. Right. And therefore, it very, very quickly disintegrates into chaos and, you know, and disorder. And I think COVID is a template for how we need to now learn and practice to work to keep the the vigilance up, keep practicing how we work together. Because on the day we have another outbreak, whose phone rings? What do they do? What does the next phone that rings? What do they do? Right. That's actually what determines our response. Right. The very practical things that get kicked off when an emergency actually arises. Not theory on a page, right? It's having your system ready to respond in time. And that means, you know, having the relationships, having, you know, the working knowledge of each other, having protocols that we've practiced 
to some extent so that we're not caught flat-footed like we saw we saw with COVID. But more importantly, just maintaining that appreciation for how this can take us all down and truly take us all down. So therefore, keeping uh, the resources uh, prioritized for this purpose is important. So now looking back 20 years, what has this brought to you personally? And where do you see yourself continuing on this journey, you know, together? And perhaps if you have also family and children, what do you see you're passing along with the work that you're doing? But the best part of doing this work is to be able to do it with my best friend. And the fact that we still get along and we still consider ourselves best friends, I think is quite miraculous as a personal journey, you know. Um, and what better, right, to wake up every morning and actually work on things that I enjoy working on and to be doing it with my best friend in life. I definitely see um, our partnership enduring no matter what, you know. We may, over time, sort of focus on other things, not exactly this, but I, de I definitely feel like from a... Thematically, we'll, we'll always still continue to be friends and to continue to identify things that need to be done. And our wives are going to look at us and shake their heads again, like, oh, these guys, what are they up to now again? <laughs> <You know? laughs> what crazy scheme are they hatching, you know, and, and uh, run off and do some other interesting adventures as well. You know, it's been a singular, singular honor and a privilege to do this, but also to work with this gentleman here. Likewise, I, I couldn't imagine doing this journey um, with anyone else except for Ernest. For me, it, in the early days um, of Broadreach, when employees came on board, we used to always give them the book, The Alchemist, Paolo Coelho's um, The Alchemist. Um, and we also gave them From Good to Great. And the whole idea was that, like finding your journey in life. So this idea that, you know, our days are numbered and what we do with those numbered days matter. And our job and our sole responsibility is to figure out what our path is um, along that. So, so we gave them these two books as sort of guideposts to help encourage people. But you know, as Ernest described, it's been a journey for us in, in, in self-discovery and self-development. How we've evolved in the last 20 years, um, you know, who we are today, completely different from who we were 20 years ago. But it's all been along this theme of discovering our path in life and our journey and supporting each other as like soulmates. And I, you know, would like to think that, you know, for our children, um, that hopefully we can also be an example that, you know, you can find your passion um, and find your calling and find your path in life. And hopefully we can be an example of that uh, to them because, you know, what a, what a horrible way to live if, if you sort of go every day, you know, to a cubicle, absolutely miserable about what you're doing, can't wait till you're done um, so that you can go off and, and do something else that, that you enjoy. And so that, I think that for, for me has really been um, the big takeaway. I mean, it's been awesome to do this and have this impact, but I think first and foremost, it's also been this personal journey of, of growth and development. You just mentioned two books there, The Alchemist and From Good to Great, right? There's one thing I also like to do at the end of, of the show is to ask if the guests have any recommendations, right? It could be books, even a movie, whatever, that you would absolutely want listeners to look into. And would that be something you'd recommend or do you have something else to recommend? For me, definitely, because I think that The Alchemist really talks about, you know, finding your personal path from good to great. So that's sort of like the right brain. And then the left brain is like good to great. It's sort of, you know, how do we think more analytically and merge that with the journey? So I think for us, that's why those two books were significant in the early days. One uh, newer book that I've read that was life-changing for me was uh, Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman. So much of what we're talking about is based on people changing their behavior in some way. And, um, and what they believe and what's been wired. And, and, and this book really sort of 
make it clear why it's so difficult to change that, but insights into if you're going to change it, you know, these are some of the things you can begin to do to, to think about how you change how, how people behave. Thank you. So the stage is yours. If you have any parting words for our listeners, uh, please go ahead. I think for the listeners, especially for, for those who are students still, I, I think don't give up on your dreams. Um, you know, figure out what it is that you're passionate about, what gets you excited, and follow that passion. Because I, I think life is this amazing journey if we choose to make it an amazing journey. Along the same theme, um, I came up you know, through a system that I felt, you know, always try to put you in a box, you know, and, and ask you to be in a box, you know, and people don't understand when you, when you want to go outside that box and do something non-traditional or something different. Uh, but I think that's where the journey is. That's where, that's where life is, you know, it's when you break out of those boxes and really push yourself to follow that journey of your heart. My, my parting word is, uh, in particular in the world we live in right now, you know, I think we need to appreciate that so much of this is what we're going to make it, you know, as humanity, right? Life is what we make it. It's about the choices we make. And we can make this heaven on earth or we can make it hell on earth, but it's up to us, right? It's not about anybody else. It's each of us has to make choices and I think we need so much more just love and compassion and understanding. We just need a lot more of that. And everybody should be more empowered to love and to be understanding and to be more caring. We can change things and turn things around tomorrow if we choose. It's been a great pleasure speaking with you both. And I hope that uh, our listeners have learned a thing or two on your organization, Broadridge Group, and also what you've been doing for the past two decades and how you're growing. So thank you very much for your time. Thanks, Claire. Yeah, thank you so much for having us. I met John in the summer of 2022. Little did I know that our brief conversation back then would lead to today's episode. I am truly grateful that both John and Ernest accepted to join me on the podcast to talk about their company. If you are an avid listener of our show, you recognize that the majority of our guests are entrepreneurs, in fact, social entrepreneurs. But this is the first time that we heard from global social entrepreneurs with a track record of almost two decades. This just goes to show how change is possible at scale. Find out more about the Broadreach Group on their website at broadreachcorporation.com. The link is also available in the show notes. Thank you so much for tuning in today. I appreciate you taking the time. This was episode 46, a conversation with Dr. Ernest Darko and Dr. John Sargent on harnessing tech innovation to improve healthcare. Remember to share this episode with your network and your friends. If you are enjoying our show, we would love to get your five-star rating on Spotify. We are always keen on hearing from our audience, so feel free to connect with us through our social handles. You'll find us on Instagram at narrativesofpurpose underscore podcast, on LinkedIn at narrativesofpurposepodcast, and you can leave us a voice message anytime on our website at narratives-of-purpose.podcastpage.io. Until the next episode, take care of yourselves, stay well, stay healthy, and stay inspired. This podcast was produced by Tom at Rustic Studios. Mm-hmm.